This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello everybody, it's Dr Nick here again. Oh, if only this were television because we've got a display of thematic elegance here. This being <laughs> berries and stripes because there might even be somewhere a string of garlic lurking at the back being Bastille. So, straight to our panel. Rainbow Doc, our resident psychologist, guru on all matters of the mind, body and soul. Lovely to see you again. It's bonjour, is it? Bonjour, say bonjour. <laughs> nice ça. to see you. Uh, and you brought someone special with you today. I have. I have uh, Dr. Kate Young from Monash University. Hi, Hello, Kate. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming in, Kate. We'll be hearing more from Kate later on, but thank you for coming in. Uh, Prudence, dear, our scientist, psychotherapist, and all round polymath. Thanks Salud. so much for coming in. Salud. <laughs> Salud. <laughs> Welcome to this Bastille Day oh, show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, and bleary-eyed from her intensive studying, or possibly her intensive partying, possibly even both, we have misdiagnosis. Hello, Misty. Bonjour. Bonjour. Was that, was that a wild night or was that hard work? That's... Oh, a bit of both. <laughs> a bit of both. I, I won't confess too much on radio this morning, I don't think, but a bit of both. We'll leave a bit it. Of blurring, a blurring of boundaries here. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, yes. uh, but, but not forgetting the most important man in the room, the man who makes it all happen behind the scenes and who will also be joining in the conversation today, panel beater. Ah, souffle. <laughs> <laughs> Risen to the occasion. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, in an eclectic show today, we'll be talking about everything from endometriosis to political prisoners, as well as asking the question, what have seagulls got to do with antibiotic resistance? Stick around, you'll find out. But first, but first, before all that, we're going to have a little bit of medical news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news, I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill, I got a bad case of loving you. Yes, yeah, a bit of heavy rocking Doctor Doctor at 10.07 on Sunday morning. You're with me, Dr Nick, on Triple R 102.7. And we're doing a bit of medical news. I'm going straight to misdiagnosis. So what have you found in the news today? Well, it turns out that whether I had been um, uh, working last night or not, I, as a, a female medical almost professional, um, I would be earning roughly 12 to 25% less than my male counterpart. So that was the study that I was doing last night. I was having a look at an article that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald on uh, Wednesday the 10th. Uh, and this was written by Dr Elizabeth Oliver, and it was looking at the um, the pay discrepancies between uh, male and female GPs. And it was, um, I, I mean, I guess this stuff is pretty rampant across, you know, every different field, but except in some Wimbledon. ways... Except at Wimbledon. Except at Wimbledon. Well, look, one example um, where, where it isn't, but um, pretty much for the rest of the world, <laughs> um, there are pretty massive pay discrepancies. And We're all on the same pay this morning, though, aren't we? <laughs> It's absolutely no difference. <laughs> yeah, I've been on the same pay for the last five years, which is which is nothing. So, um, but no, looking at the um, at some of these studies, it, sort of uh, female GPs are earning roughly twelve to twenty five percent less per hour than their male counterparts. And the part of this that is quite complex is um, looking at sort of where this comes from and why. And is it that women aren't charging as much for consultations? Uh, female GPs, this is. Um, is it that they're doing different styles of consultations and what some of the research that has come out of um, the Family Medicine Research Centre in Sydney um, has has kind of shown is that uh, female GPs are managing more complex issues and prescribing less. And because of that, they are seeing their patients less frequently, so they're having longer consultations, it's fewer people in and out of the door. And because of that, they are using sort of different price brackets um, but when they do try and pump up, bump up the price bracket um, and charge more for those consultations, there's been public outcry. It's it's ridiculous, isn't it? Doing more complicated consultations, um, dealing with more problems, prescribing less, and then getting paid less for doing the job well. Mm, yeah, so it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I don't know on what level this needs to change or where it where it needs to start. But in some ways, I think it's. Uh, can we value these this work, which is essentially, in an essence, more more kind of the uh, the more social aspects of some of the healthcare stuff? When we start actually valuing that, I think people will start being reimbursed for it correctly. It's an outcome of our ridiculous fee-for-service system in primary care where you get paid much more for pushing people through and seeing them quickly and get paid much less for quality care, something which I've been cross about for about 30 years since arriving in this country. I think we should storm the Bastille. Yeah, I think that would probably work. At least in the UK where I came from, the lousy GPs got paid no more than the good GPs, whereas we do have this paradoxical system in Australia where the, the better GPs and here these women doing good work, taking time, prescribing less, which is what we want, getting paid less. Not what we'd prefer. We'll have to do a whole segment on that at some time, I think, and dissect that in more detail. But uh, I need to move straight on to... Uh, Thing called leptospirosis. leptospirosis. Now that's quite a mouthful yeah. for a Sunday morning. It is, isn't it? What is it? Oh, okay. It's something that caught my eye this week, and it was perhaps a little bit offbeat, but um, it's actually of great significance to those of us who have dogs, dog lovers. Who's got a dog? Two. Two. 
two. Two. Mm, I've got one. There's a shaking of the head from Kate. Okay. Well, there's a few around here. Um, Okay. Just actually uh, reported this week was a sudden sort of increase in the incidence and also the, unfortunately, amongst dogs, deaths due to leptospirosis. Um, And um, I guess part part of the issue here is that in New South Wales, they've they've not reported any deaths prior to this year. And in the last three months, there have been seven deaths amongst dogs Um, and due to this particular condition. Now, this is a bacteria condition that um, is spread by rats mostly, oh, right. unfortunately so it kind of gives rats a bad reputation and, um, Did they, rats ever have a good reputation? Well, I think some people like, like rats. Well, I used sure to have a pet rat called Willard. Yeah, 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 exactly. a terrific rat. They make great pets actually. Yeah, These are quality pets. Um, but yeah, why this sudden surge? I mean, it, it's, this, this disease is fairly sort of, you know, prevalent in places like uh, Queensland where I think it's due to sort of, you know, the climate, warmer, moist sort of conditions. Um, the bacteria tends to reside in the, in the kidneys of the rats and therefore tends to come out in the urine so they kind of contaminate their environment a bit and the sort of question is but why you know why this sort of sudden shift um and nobody's really sort of you know we we don't use um certainly in new south wales and victoria we don't vaccinate dogs against leptospirosis so it's generally not been seen as a problem but the question seems to be or some of the answers seem to be around first of all that there's a lot of things happening around sydney there's been a lot of construction work and things like which is actually you know, um, disturbing the kind of the ecosystem of the of the rat. So the rats are becoming more mobile and being disturbed. Oh, they're, 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 <laughs> they're not happy. The they're not happy. They're not happy with the light rail or right. the tram works. Right. Um, and, wh- and why? What does leptospirosis do to a dog? And does it do uh, anything to a human? Yes, it does. Now, um, I mean, the sort of main thing is it does tend to attack the kidneys again because the, the the bacteria tend to reside in there. And I'm not going to talk too much about some of this stuff because I've got experts. But you know, kidney problems are. are significant um, and I think there's sort of more general kind of symptoms that you get from this disease so it starts off looking rather flu-like and then progresses to sort of other but rather it, it unpleasant can be symptoms. very severe in yeah. in humans uh, I saw a, a patient with leptospirosis in Fiji a young man and um, because often the bacteria can contaminate the water that it's mm. in so the you know the rats will urinate and then if you have a um, you know any kind of abrasion or cut on your feet and lots of people walking around without any shoes on and um, you can pick up this this disease and this young man very very unwell ended up in ED and um, no, I think he ended up in ICU afterwards. It can be very yeah, it can be humans. fatal in humans, yeah. and it has been fatal in dogs. And you so know, that it's it, it's vectored through the water as well. So the problem being that there's a lot more. There's been a lot more surface water, but a lot of rain around. So dogs, as we know, tend to like licking up dirty puddles. So, but before we the terrify things. the whole canine owning population of Victoria, right. <laughs> has this come to Victoria? Do, do we have to be vigilant? We haven't, as far as I'm aware, it's not really been seen in dogs in Victoria. Um, okay. But there have been a few cases in humans this year. So there've been four cases. In humans, so so look out for the advance of the rats and take yeah, care of your dog. Just, yeah. Ooh, interesting. So maybe something for the future. Yeah, we should keep an eye on it. Rainbow, I think there was a quick topic that, uh, and I fear that this is not something that should be quick. But you wanted to mention something which came up in the Royal Commission. Yeah, I just uh, opened the uh, Sunday Age today and saw a report um, uh, from the uh, Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. Um, there's a, been a submission from the Health and Community Services Union um, reporting on a survey of 500 mental health workers in Victoria showing that in the past year one in three have been assaulted um, and by assault meaning you know attacked with a knife, punched, kicked spat on. So not just talking some some crosswords, we're talking physical assault. Yeah, we're not talking just verbal assault. I think, you know, I think most people 
myself including working in the system have been verbally assaulted to be physically assaulted is um something else um and uh of course what we're talking about here is a system that that is working with people that are highly traumatized sometimes drug affected um and what what's happened is that most of the people also working in the system if they weren't uh carrying some form of trauma when they started and were motivated to work in the system are becoming traumatized themselves so we have this sort of a cauldron of uh of traumatic stress in the system i mean you know the the um royal commission is closed for submissions now we're looking at i think the first report comes in november at the end of this year um people interested i don't know if you realize it's being live streamed the public hearings are being live streamed um and i just hope that something comes out of it because something's sorely needed Thanks for alerting us to that, um, Rainbow, because that is an extraordinary figure. One in three mental health workers being physically assaulted in some form. We'll come back to that topic another time and do that one justice as well. Right now, we're going to head off to a quick station announcement. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're here on Triple R Radiotherapy at 10.17 on Sunday morning with me, Dr Nick. We have in the students, students studio with students as well. We've got Prudence Steer, we've got Misdiagnosis, and we've got Rainbow Doc. And Rainbow, thanks for bringing in our lovely guest. Would you like to take it away and introduce Kate? Thank you, Dr Nick. Um, Dr Kate Young is um, from Monash University, a researcher in mainly the psychosocial aspects of endometriosis thank you for joining us kate thank you so much for inviting me so can we can we start right at the beginning on this and if you could give us a give us the lowdown on exactly what endometriosis is Sure. So endometriosis is a chronic inflammatory condition. Uh, It's characterized by the presence of tissue that looks like the lining of the uterus, which is called the endometrium, hence the name endometriosis. Um, And that tissue is found outside of the uterus in women with endometriosis. And that in itself isn't that uncommon. Um, But for women with endometriosis, that tissue forms lesions or a cyst, um, so it becomes physical disease. Um, And it's often found in the pelvis, but it can actually be found anywhere in the body. For example, there's been some cases where they've found endometriosis on women's brains um, or inside their noses or even on fingertips. Yeah, very interesting. What? Fingertips. Yeah, the, um, the nose one's actually my favourite because um, that tissue responds like the lining of the endometrium to the hormones that um, trigger menstruation. So there was a case study of um, a woman with endometriosis inside her nose and whenever she had her period, she'd get nosebleeds. This sounds terrifyingly like the old-fashioned concept of hysteria and the wandering womb. Oh, yeah. Here it is wandering all over the body. Yes, there's... um, The medical literature draws on that metaphor quite a lot, yeah. (laughs) You said that it's uh, it's tissues which which looks like the lining of the Mm. uterus. Does that mean that this only occurs in people with uteruses? So that's... um, one of the many weird things about endometriosis is that it's actually been found in men and male-bodied people. Um, so there's quite a few case studies now um, of that. 
and no one really knows why. Um, a lot of those um, men have had um, estrogen therapy, for example, for prostate cancer. And then endometriosis is thought to be um, estrogenic, so it's thought to be promoted. Um, the growth will promote it by the um, hormone estrogen. Um, but yeah, no one really knows why. But um, I find it really interesting that there have been quite a few male cases now. Um, but yeah, endometriosis is still very much gendered to women and, and considered a gynecological condition. So what's the main symptom? Because my experience of people with endometriosis is the experience of pain. Yeah, so there's quite a few symptoms and it varies so much with um, women. So one of the most common ones that we hear about a lot is um, chronic pelvic pain, which means any kind of pain really in the pelvis that's ongoing. Um, So some women get really painful periods um, and painful ovulation. Um, Some women are really fatigued, um, vomiting, cyclic diarrhea, constipation. Um, A lot of it depends on where the disease is. Um, But then for some women, they might have a lot of physical disease, but then not many symptoms and vice versa. Just one of the many weird and mysterious things about endometriosis. Um, Your work is mainly on the, the, the social, psychological impact of endometriosis. So... What what is the main impact? I mean, I I came across you, Kate, mm-hmm. when you were talking about um, the the impact of endometriosis on people's um, sex lives. So, um, and you were talking about, uh, I, I guess, a lack of knowledge, uh, the the impact of of endometriosis and pain, and an inability for people to really communicate about it. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, so endometriosis can impact all areas of a woman's life. Um, Another thing that's quite interesting, though, and that I don't think we hear often about, is that some women um, have quite severe endometriosis, but it's one chapter in their life. And then there are other women who their symptoms might not be as severe, but their whole life is rewritten by it. Uh, It varies quite a bit. You often hear about the latter more so in the media. Um, And women with endometriosis are often described as sufferers and things like that, quite quite victimising language. Um, But in my experience of doing research with women with endometriosis, it's really diverse. Um, And a lot of it depends on the kind of support that you have around you and the quality of the healthcare that you've received. Um, not just how effective the treatment has been in relieving the pain. So it really varies. Um, Another thing that's quite interesting in the research that I've done um, around endometriosis, I originally, having a psychology background, was really interested in um, the psychological aspects more than the social. But once I started delving into it, it was really the social um, side of things that uh, became really interesting to me. Um, So lots of beliefs in our society around women and pain and that period pain, for example, is normal um, and how those social beliefs are integrated into medical education and knowledge and how that impacts the care that women are receiving. So I end up focusing quite a bit more on the um, social aspects of things. Does, does that mean that to some extent women risk getting ignored or um, not taken seriously because pain is something that women are supposed to experience that sort of thinking? Yes, absolutely. So endometriosis um, 
has quite a long diagnosis delay. So from the time that women first experience symptoms to when they're actually diagnosed with endometriosis, it varies quite a bit. But one of the um, highest quality studies from 10 countries across the world, they averaged it to five and a half years, but that went up to 38 years for some women as well. So it's a really... 38 years. So you're talking about someone just living with it absolutely and some of that is because as i've um, alluded to endometriosis is a tricky weird condition it can be hard to diagnose it seems like it's similar to other conditions Um, but it also requires surgery to be diagnosed and not all women um, or clinicians have access to that kind of um, training or equipment that's required um particularly in um, developing countries, for example, that might be something that's really hard to access or something that women don't want to elect to do. Um, Understandably, it's quite invasive. So what is, if it's not surgery, what is the treatment? Um, So there are a few options, but they do tend to um, divide into either medical, so hormonal therapies, um, so the pill, for example. But because uh, endometriosis is thought to be estrogenic, People are now encouraging progesterone-only hormonal therapies. But a recent um, systematic review came out and it said basically that half of all women will get symptoms again within five years after um, trialling those. And the side effects of those are not acceptable to a lot of women. And if you're trying to conceive um, as well, those aren't appropriate for you because they're contraceptive. So um, just to translate for listeners who aren't familiar with estrogen, yes. <laughs> what, what you're saying is that the standard contraceptive pill which contains two hormones, estrogen and progesterone, might be a good thing for some women with endometriosis, yes. but because the estrogen in there might stimulate the disease itself, sometimes women are advised to have just the single hormone, the progesterone only, or what's sometimes called the mini pill. Yes. But even that isn't necessarily um, going to work, is that right? Yes, and there's lots of different um, progesterone-only options like the IUD where you have the little device inserted into the um, cervix and um, you can get injections as well. And there's no research to suggest that one of those is better than any others. Often it's about um, the woman having a discussion with her doctor about which one she feels is best for her. Um, and sometimes the answer to that will be that none of them um, are appropriate to her. And for the woman who either doesn't want contraception because she's trying to consider or for whom those methods don't work. Can you talk us through a little bit what the other treatment options might be? It's basically only surgery. Um, So when women have surgery to treat endometriosis, not just diagnose it, um, the surgeon would be either cutting out the disease or burning it off. Um, Those are really the only options, so that's extremely limited. Um, There's a lot of women who um, consider complementary alternative therapy options, Um, so acupuncture, for example, but there's not a lot of evidence at the moment. Um, That's not saying that some people um, might not feel some benefit from that, but, yeah, treatment for endometriosis is pretty dismal in terms of options. I'd imagine there's a high level of depressive symptoms. Um, women with endometriosis are definitely more likely than the general population to report having experienced um, depression and anxiety. Um, but once again, it varies a lot um, in terms of the type of support that you have around you and the quality of the care that you've received and um, things like that. So, yeah, different for everyone, but slightly more common, that's for sure. And what sort of impact on people's intimate relationships? Um, so yeah, that again, that varies as well. Um, often, when you like, if you, for example, you googled endometriosis and relationships, you'd probably come up with a terrifying amount of um, articles about men who've broken up with their partners because they um, found sex painful or things like that. But um, in my research, yeah, a lot of women um, said that 
if a relationship ended because of endometriosis, it was going to end because of something else. It, if it wasn't endo, it was going to be something else. Um, but there was women talking about having really supportive partners or that they actually found endometriosis to have a positive effect on the relationship. It brought them closer together. So again, it varied. And the reason why I'm pointing out that it does vary for women is that if you did Google endometriosis, you would find this single story of a, a suffering woman and who's depressed and upset and um, everyone keeps breaking up with her and she has new friends. I just think it's really important to um, emphasize that it's different for all women and um, I think it can be dangerous falling into that trap of that single story of endometriosis. I think um, what you're saying there about if you want adversity or some kind of difficulty bringing people together together um you know it's almost like a a couple condition yeah um yeah some people um find it helpful to think about that other women find it really helpful to own it in themselves and um lead their way but yeah some people certainly find that i really like this idea of um community resilience so thinking about endometriosis as a problem for everyone not just women um because it does impact on women's ability to participate socially and economically and that is a huge problem for our community so if it's a problem for everyone what what can we do well, so much is being done already. Um, within the six years since I first started um, researching endometriosis, I cannot believe like the explosion of social awareness. Um, for example, the government just released the Endometriosis National Action Plan last year, and they've announced loads of funding for it too, which is fantastic. And I think it's really interesting and important to point out that a lot of that awareness came from the emotional and physical labour of women themselves. Um, so there's some fantastic um, advocacy organisations like the Queensland Endo Organisation and Endo Active, and women have just been working so hard and social awareness has increased a lot. I think um, people are much more aware of the condition. Um, and one of the other great things that they're doing now is integrating more education around endometriosis into um, secondary schooling and sex health um, programs for example which I think is really important and there's a lot being done around increasing um, education for clinicians as well but I think a lot of this comes back down to gender and um, for example I I think that's related also to what we're talking about before about why um, female GPs take on so much more emotional labor in their work Um, and I'd really like to start seeing some more work on gender in medical education I know the curriculum is already so crowded but I think it's really important for um, health professionals to go out into the workforce understanding that um, the many factors that contribute to the experiences that women are bringing to them particularly around endometriosis I think that would really help um, given that we don't have a cure for endometriosis and that treatment is so dismal I think we could provide much more holistic psychosocial care. That, that is a fantastic call to action Kate thank you very much I hope all the organisers of medical curricula out there are listening and suddenly penciling more work on gender Yes please do, for all that those be students great. in call every me. health field. <laughs> uh, that was absolutely fascinating Kate thank you so much for coming in. Please would you hang around and join in the conversation in this second half me. hour. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're with me, Dr. Nick, on radiotherapy with Prudent Steer Rainbow Doc Misdiagnosis and our guest, Kate Young. So since it is Bastille Day, since we're talking things a little French, we, we were thinking of political prisoners, which took us right up panel beaters, Ali. So, panel beater, tell us what you've got. It certainly does. Um, take me up my alley. <laughs> 
starting the business. <laughs> uh, yeah, so thinking about uh, Bastille Day today and the storming of the Bastille, which was a, uh, a prison and essentially housed seven or eight, half a dozen handful political prisoners um, at the time and their release sort of signifies, although not strictly speaking, the beginning of the, the French Revolution. 230 years ago today. 230. Um, just seems like yesterday, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, and a number of things came out of uh, the French Revolution related to health. Um, I'll just quickly pass through a couple, draw people's attention to. So the health system was effectively revolutionised as part of the revolution. It... Um, in the spirit of libertaire, galataire and uh, fraternitaire. Um, the hospital system, which was largely run by the Catholic Church at the time, um, on the back of the Enlightenment and so on, became secular. And um, as a consequence, the hospital system launched, um, for want of a better word, uh, treating hospitals less as a place of refuge and more as a place of teaching and research as well as clinical care. Okay. Um, I had no idea about that. Yeah, it, it, hospitals in Paris at the time were largely housing uh, the poor and prostitutes and um, vagrants and, and what have you. And there was a big shift in there. It was also around this time that um, the stethoscope was invented, in, um, which had a very significant contribution to the identification of tuberculosis. Hmm. Yep. And um, which, uh, speaking of political prisoners, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who died of tuberculosis or bleeding lungs at least anyway, um, he benefited from this directly. Um, they were able to identify that through him. It was also the time when Braille came in. Um, Braille is the surname of uh, the young fella, 10 years old at the time, um, who developed, was the initial um, guinea pig of uh, Braille. What a font of historical wisdom you are. Oh, you know... Um, <laughs> I'm not. Um, so we have um, the storming of the Bastille and the release of political prisoners, and that got me thinking about is there something that distinguishes the psychology of political prisoners or issues for the psychology of political prisoners and their mental health compared to a general prison population? Good question. And um, it turns out there is. There's, uh, there's a lot in common, um, but there are some notable, notable differences. Now, I hope I'm not repeating myself. I've got this sense of deja vu. Boom, Tish. Yes. Um, uh, but um, I think um, one of the issues was um, around how the nature of the cause of their imprisonment um, uh, reflects on their experience of imprisonment and then indeed what happens after release. Um, so there's a few things to, to um, sort of like just recognise that uh, political prisoner often experiences um, significant uh, maltreatment. Um, you know, and this can include psychological and physical torture. So things like solitary confinement, deprivation of light, exercise, nutrition, um, a whole lot of things, um, which, you know, can just be something a general prison population might experience in a, in a you know, less than um, kind um, prison system, criminal justice system, but is particularly so uh, for political prisoners, especially if there's... Um, uh, punishment involved for their political activities. It makes sense, doesn't it? If yeah. the regime has locked them up, the regime is not going to be terribly nice to them. No, certainly not. Um, and so the symptoms, no surprises, uh, PTSD and um, uh, depression and anxiety. Um, the PTSD seems to be the point of departure in the dis thing that distinguishes it, distinguishes it from general prison population. So in that respect, it's much more like being a prisoner of war 
or um, a hostage, um, that kind of confinement. Um, so the trauma is the element that makes the distinction. And the factors that seem to contribute to this are obviously um, the, the incarceration just in and of itself, but um, the per- persecution that can continue after release, um, the lack of rehabilitation, um, after release, um, especially if the if the political prisoner was um, actually sent to a rehabilitation camp or a re-education camp, um, that can um, be almost contradictory to the experience on release. And I, I can easily understand how all of that could be highly traumatic and inducive of PTSD. I'm just interested in talking to our psychologists in the rooms here. That um, one of the things that I would have thought potentially was protective against PTSD is a is a very strong sense of direction, a sense that while I'm being unjustly incarcerated, I have a, a role, a purpose, um, a belief that might sustain me. And intuitively, I would have thought that could be protective. Am I wrong? It could be protective in some way, yes, but it doesn't completely uh, prevent the nervous system from being affected by uh, at- from attack. Mm-hmm. And you're um, alluding to what is the great um, uh, uh, case study that we'll come to in a second that actually sort of like tests that idea um, or and may even um, uh, underpin it. Um, I'll just uh, keep going with the symptoms for a moment and go into that. Uh, so you've got the PTSD, um, you've got the depression, anxiety, and then uh, consequentially the um, substance abuse, some um, somatic um, uh, complaints and disassociative disorders. Um, moving more directly to the nature of the you know diagnosis, so to speak, um, this language was coming up in the articles I was reading called mental defeat. Right, for okay. for um for political prisoners, um and it's related to this idea that the reason you're in there is because of some conviction you hold, and that conviction is you know um outside jail when you're being revolutionary or antagonistic to the state perhaps, um you were you were moving with a conviction and that even if you were oppressed, um you nevertheless were taking action. Whereas once you're uh, confined, not only, you still hold that commitment, but you've got no outlet for it. And in fact, you're on a daily, hourly um, moment. You're being constantly chipped away at and, and beaten up uh, physically and uh, mentally. So this idea of mental defeat uh, kept coming up over and over again. So... Um, you mentioned um, uh, the idea of this commitment. How does that fit in? Well, it seems like it could work in two ways. As Simultaneously, it might be that, that it works as a protective role. So your commitment um, works as a way to fortify you. Um, against the oppression that you feel you're experiencing. So we're not making a judgment. Some political prisoners might be horrific people. Um, Other uh, political prisoners... But it's not about what their views are, but maybe about the strengths of their views and their commitment to it. Yep, yep. So um, simultaneously, the commitment might be fortifying you, um, but it might be because of that commitment that you're more prone to be um, more vulnerable to being hit with the trauma of the of the of the time that you're experience, experiencing. Now, so a lot of the um, uh, political prisoners are coming out of their experience traumatised and we listed the, um, uh, di- uh, the, the symptoms a moment ago. The kes- test case is Nelson Mandela. Mm, okay. 
27 years he was incarcerated and by all accounts didn't experience any negative psychological disorder on release. And do we know how he was treated in prison? Well, he spent lots of time in um, solitary confinement, Um, certainly wouldn't have been, um, you know, resting around on chaise lounge, Um, just whipping off the French this morning. Um, And, um, but um, uh, it wouldn't have been pretty. We know it wasn't pretty and and his his, uh, autobiography um, details that. But he didn't come out with any trauma. Now, the psychological explanation, apparently, um, is that it was because of his disposition to forgiveness rather than um, uh, retribution. And as we know, that um, one of the there's been a few of these subsequently, but one of um, the contributions of apartheid to look for a glass half full um, was the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission at the end of that uh, period of apartheid, and the um, and Mandela himself talks about how that was a process to heal both the nation. Um, the individuals and the communities. And so he was using this language of healing as a consequence of being a political prisoner for 27 years. That's a long time to lose your liberty. So this is an incredibly important point, that the capacity to feel more strongly around the concept of forgiveness rather than anger and retribution was for him potentially a very protective factor. Again, I'm going to cast my eye to the psychologist. Is this something that you would recognise? I I think... um when we're talking about forgiveness, it's a form of self-soothing. Uh, and if there's an attack on our, on us, or on our sense of self, on our uh, uh, the function of our of our of our nervous system, if we are able to soothe ourselves, we are able to downregulate and. Uh, minimise, if you want, the impact of you know the the fight or flight system being activated. Mm. You know, um, the the fight is the anger. The fight is what maybe fuels the activism or the political activity in the first place. When there's no outlet for that, as Panel Beater was saying, there needs to be some way of managing that. Yeah, so yeah. forgiveness is a way of self-soothing. That's well, forgiveness, it's, a, it's probably a very appropriate topic to consider on a Sunday morning. I think you can't really think of a better role model for how to survive in something than someone like Nelson Mandela and if his capacity to forgive was one of the protective factors. I think that's a fascinating... It, it reminds me of something my younger daughter said to me when she was about 10. She said, I try to hold grudges, hmm. but I forget. Yeah, yeah, and I think probably if that's if that's about forgiveness, that's not a bad way to to live your life. That's that's a fascinating concept, Panel Peter. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, I'll, I'll wrap it up with just a quick comment to link it into the contextual issue for um, uh, talk therapies at the moment. I'd be really interested to see if there's a, another comment to add. But um, so Nelson Mandela is often pointed to as somebody as an exemplar of stoicism, and um, in turn. Um, the use of cognitive behavioural therapy, even if it was self-applied at the time and it wasn't labelled that. This idea that you can control your thoughts and your disposition to your oppressor or the person you feel is harming you or um, doing you damage um, 
Yeah, I'm just, I'm just yeah. Well, I think that's a very good way of finishing up on that topic. And um, cognitive behavior therapy, CBT, one of the main psychological paradigms used to this day, along with many others. <laughs> along with many others. <laughs> yeah, it tends to get the Guernsey because it's easy to study, but there's plenty of other good psychology out there apart from that. Uh, we're going to go through a short break and then we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And welcome back to Radiotherapy. It's nearly 10 to 11. It's me, Dr Nick, with Prudence Steer, Rainbow Doc, Misdiagnosis, and our guest Kate Young in the studio here with Panel Beta. Um, and we're moving straight from political prisoners to something not terribly French. I don't think we can even find I some can't. sort of... I don't even know what the French for a seagull no, is. I was going to look that up, but no, it doesn't have tough time. <laughs> the yeah, wasal not French. and antibiotic yeah. resistance. Tell yeah, us about this. What have seagulls on? got to do with antibiotic Well, actually, resistance? well, I was trying to keep uh, you know, a theme going for my sort of areas to talk about today, so I thought I'd keep it in the animal kingdom and how they might interact with that's humans. Yep. Yeah, that's slightly thematic, isn't it? So, um, yeah, do you know there are people who study um, seagull poo? You know, guano, I think is a semi-technical term for it. There are people who actually study it. I'm not sure why sometimes. I thought guano was an alt-rock band. Well, it might, be in your, <laughs> might have been in your era, but... Uh, Oh, Mouette is a seagull. Ah, Mouette. There we there go. We so, uh-huh. um, anyway, they, they, people do, and it's not something new, actually. The study of, I guess, you know, gives us an indication. Seagulls are kind of scavenging um, creatures, and they also move around the globe quite a bit, actually. So they kind of can be quite a useful kind of indicator to what's going on in our environment. And uh, amongst the things that the people do study is to look at the sort of the, the, the bacteria that exist in the guts of seagulls, and that kind of tells us quite a lot about all sorts of things. Um, but something that has become increasingly noticed is the you know the prevalence of antibiotic resistant strains or bacteria in the guts of those animals. Um, and um, you know this kind of is something obviously you know is a global issue and it's kind of gives us an indication perhaps of what's going on i mean i think probably one of the things to point out of course because we're so used to going down to the you know the bay and having the seagulls flocking around us especially if we've got a bucket of chips or something um flock of seagulls that is a band isn't it that's a band that's right (laughs) finally (laughs) um and um uh, but i don't just so we don't panic about anything, there's no real sort of scientific evidence about transmission of any of these bacteria from, from birds to humans, so it's not getting into the, the chain that way. But there is perhaps, you know, a need to be a bit careful perhaps of hand-to-mouth sort of, you know, contact and stuff, so just bear that in mind. But what, what um, does this tell us? If seagull poo bacteria are more antibiotic resistant, so what? So what? Okay, well, where are they getting it from, I suppose? So it's in, really an indication of the, the increasing levels of antibiotic resistance in the environment as, as scavenging animals. And I think one of the main sort of sources of, um, suspected sources of this is actually from, like, landfill and rubbish dumps and um, treatment works for, for water. So human effluent, um, uh, you know, landfill, I've got lots of babies' nappies and incontinence products and various other things, and seagulls zap in there and um, you know a bit like the dogs they kind of like eating anything Um, so that's possibly one of the areas that they're actually picking this up from but it now giving us an indication as I say of of the increasing sort of levels in the environment of antibiotic resistant kind of uh, strains of bacteria Um, and 
one of the things that came out actually just recently um, in, in a study of Australian um, uh, seagulls and their bacteria was the prevalence of a, a thing called uh, cholestin-resistant bacteria. Now, cholestin, if I'm looking at my medical people here, is one of the kind of last-line defence um, antibiotics. Uh, I'm, my doctors are looking very... Yes, I'm doing the, the, the very effective radio yeah. thing of frowning. OK, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> No, you're, I'm not convinced. No misdiagnosis. Calistin. Uh, how do you spell it? C O L I S T I N. There we are. Google it quickly. Um, no, so not delving too much on that, but in, in terms of the specifics there. But what we do know is that, and what I've seen because I used to do toxicology, so and I studied some antibiotics, is that the antibiotics we tend to keep in reserve for treating infections that are developing resistance. Um, and obviously they're effective, but also they tend to be kept in reserve partly because they have a lot more side effects. So they're not quite as um, quite as safe. Um, so a, a, a very powerful group of antibiotics that are used, not necessarily as first line, are things like aminoglycosides, which are yep. yeah, neomycin, canamycin, gentamicin, which, um, but they cause things uh, uh, like uh, deafness. They're ototoxic and they're also nephrotoxic, so they can do damage to the kidneys. And um, my understanding certainly is that yeah, some of these uh, last line um, antibiotics we don't particularly want to use but we have to if they don't if nothing else is going to work the fact that this the resistance to those antibiotics are showing up in these seagulls is kind of indicating to us i think that these bacteria are now becoming more prevalent in our environment so if i'm understanding you correctly the seagulls in this case are acting now this is a bit of an ornithological mishmash but they're the sort of canaries in the coal mine if you like absolutely they're they're, they're warning us that antibiotic resistance yeah. is increasing yeah which uh, is something we'd expect because we i think we know from a you know science perspective when we you know that, that bacteria are quite capable of mutating and yeah. they are very good actually at developing resistance and are we, do you know are we more interested in the bacteria in the poo of seagulls than we are for instance of other scavenging type animals or possums or whatever that well, are all around the place I think, um, I think why the, do we care particularly about antibiotic resistance in, in seagull seagulls poo? well <laughs> it's it, i think it is just because a they move around the globe so potentially they could be a vector for transmission and they just hang around they're pretty ubiquitous so they kind of uh, we, we, they're, they're there. Which brings us, of course, to the crucial thing with antibiotic resistance. What the hell do we do about it? Right. Well, it kind of needs a lot more research, doesn't it? And I think one of the, the, the issues that we've been seeing in the recent past is that they're not really developing many new antibiotics. From a commercial perspective, there's lots more sorts of things that can have... Um, well, these are expensive, aren't they? Any drug development is expensive. Drug testing is incredibly expensive. There's a commercial sort of imperative to make a return on investment. So, but, but we need to do more than just get new antibiotics to get resistance to. We need more antibiotic stewardship. So, call misdiagnosis. Yeah. You, you're in the thick of this in hospital medicine. They must teach you about this. What should we be doing? What should we be doing? Well, it's it's tricky because um, there's a combination of you know between every patient we use that lovely alcohol hand gel. Um, in between the patients, which is then developing its own resistance to those kind of things anyway. So it's a it's a sort of toss-up. How do we keep people safe and practice safe medicine? And um, when do we need to pull out, you know, in sort of inverted commas, the big gun antibiotics to, um, you know, ensure that we're treating our patients properly? And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, 
as much as I'd like to say, well, we all use the um, electronic therapeutic guidelines and look up exactly what antibiotic we should be using for this particular patient, it comes down to uh, prescriber preference. And often um, certain doctors will use certain antibiotics because they're comfortable with them, they know the rates of complications and they know how to prescribe them. It's a huge and very complicated question, as uh, I'm sure everybody out there realises, and it's not just about doctors, it's about veterinary medicine, it's about farming practices. Oh, I, say, I mean, that is a big area, yeah. isn't it, yeah. as well? The, the use of antibiotics, you yeah. know, you almost prophylactically to yeah. protect animals and also to improve growth rates. Yeah. I mean, and in, in my own field, in general practice, we know that antibiotics are thrown around far too readily for simple respiratory infections mm. with prescribing rates for what are mostly viral infections of 50 to 60%. They should probably be down around about 10 or 15%. I think we probably need to go back to that gender question of the female doctors who are prescribing less anyway. So maybe the answer is just employing more female doctors and paying them well. I agree. I think also um, there is a patient expectation, and this is just one small factor, um, to receive something when they do go to a doctor. And it's really hard to um, understand um, why an antibiotic might not be a good idea. I think when they come, they expect a solution in the form of something they can take away. Um, and yeah, women who might be able to, or who are choosing to take more time, um, might circumvent that a bit more. But yeah, there's a patient kind of expectation. Which that is, you... which is a really, really interesting point. Was the topic of one of my questions, my master's thesis, funnily Sorry. enough. And what, interesting. We, what, what the research shows, this is an excuse doctors leave, use all the time. Oh, patients expect antibiotics. That's why I prescribe. What the research shows is that if patients are given simple, sensible explanations about why they don't need antibiotics, even if they're expecting was to get one, they leave generally satisfied. Uh, I'm afraid that something else. the patient expectation is an excuse that doctors use for sloppy practice. Oh, that's fascinating. I've actually heard that um, with endometriosis too from a few clinicians who are just like, oh, my patients come in and they push me to have surgery. Um, so yeah, maybe there's something similar there as well. Very interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid our profession doesn't do itself proud sometimes when it comes to these sorts of things. And we tend to use these bad patients as an excuse for how we behave without recognising that we do actually have the capacity to make a difference. Rainbow. So they're, they're patients without patients. <laughs> very nice. Maybe we should just treat them like seagulls and give them some pom frites. <laughs> <laughs> uh, down on the beach with the pom frites for the seagulls, which I'm sure doesn't do them any good at all. Probably is no good for their gut microbiome. They need some pro- more kombucha down at the beach for the seagulls. Uh, to keep some of those Increase fermented those products. Healthy gut bacteria. Yeah. Uh, antibiotic resistance, such a huge topic and something we will have to come back to another day because really it is something we have to do something about because we are facing this future where we may not have antibiotics that work for the infections that we, we just take for granted. And we could be back into the 1950s where people die from rose thorn pricks because the bugs get in. We can't treat it. That's a slightly sombre yeah, note, isn't it, yeah. to wrap up radiotherapy with? I apologise for that. Um, so forgive me um, on this Bastille Day for ending on antibiotic resistance, but this has been radiotherapy. It's nearly time to wrap up, and I just want to say, we've just got time to say thank you to our expert panellist, Rainbow, Prudence Deer, Misdiagnosis. Huge thank you to Panel Beta for contributions, comments, and keeping this whole show on the road. Uh, and particularly to our wonderful guest, Kate Young, thank you so much for giving up your time on a Sunday morning. I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.